So Molly gave me a book uh, for my birthday or Christmas. I asked you for a service, Father's Day. <laughs> Wrong on both counts. <laughs> and she told me first service and I'd already forgotten. It's a book called How to Stay Married, which I was very confused by because I, I thought it was a how-to book, but it's a memoir. Um, it's hilarious. Several of you have been reading it, I think. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great book. It, it, um, its author, Harrison Scott Key, he tells a, a true story from the first day of 10th grade. Uh, his English teacher, Mrs. Pulaski, she stands up in front of the class, she writes her name on the board, and then she turns to the class and she says, on some days I might look different to you because I have a condition that makes me bloat. And that struck the students, and Harrison, to this day, has always remembered that moment. And he, in, in the book, he goes on to say how he and the other students just completely adored this teacher. They loved her. They were captivated by her lessons. She taught with clarity and with authority. And they were just absolutely, um, they, they just loved her. And he says, we loved her not because she came with threats or swagger or charm, but because she presented with us the thing that would set us free, the truth. I love that statement. See, Mrs. Pulaski, she was, she was open about something in her life that had been a source of pain and embarrassment for her. And she named that reality. She named the truth of that situation. She, sta she stated it plainly to these high schoolers who absolutely needed to hear this. It anticipated their curiosity. It disarmed any potential teasing that she might receive. It freed them to have more genuine conversations in the classroom about truthful things. It allowed them to be more honest with one another as they engaged the, the subjects of that classroom. Uh, she's a wonderful example of, of teaching and of leadership. So Christian leadership here in America today is in an absolute moral crisis, is it not? In fact, just this morning, I, I don't recommend this if you're about to preach. Don't, like, open up the news and start reading that. Um, but I did, like a bozo. Uh, and I learned of someone who I had looked up to when I was a high schooler uh, who had a moral failing. Um, just fit right, right on in with what I was preaching today. But a quick survey of religious leaders shows us people who prioritize their own reputation over the mission of the church. Leaders who make decisions based on the latest business trends rather than their identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Leaders whose pulpit persona is different from who they are behind closed doors. So today, I want us to look at Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. Because here we see a Christian leader who is being tremendously vulnerable with his people. Some scholars would point to this passage and say that, that more than in any other place where Paul writes, he is pouring out his heart to people. He's bearing his soul to his congregation. He's being vulnerable with them. So I want us to look at this as well this morning. I've got three themes to draw from this. And as we look through Paul's vulnerability, may we have an encounter with the truth. May we have an encounter with the truth, Jesus Christ, who he himself is the truth. He himself has modeled a life for Paul that he is now modeling for the rest of us. So may we move through this passage with these things in mind. But first, 
I think it's important for us to know the context of this situation, the the reason for why Paul wrote this letter, because he's writing it as a result of a super embarrassing ministry fiasco. Uh, it's It's an awful experience that just happened to him. You see, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica because he has already visited them. He's, he's already been there, he's already visited them, and things didn't, they didn't go well, to say the least. As he was there preaching, uh, the people were so disturbed by the things that he said that it broke out in public riot, way to go, uh, and then the, the, the civic authorities started to, to bring legal charges against him, great, uh, and then as a result of that, people were making threats against his life. So if, if you're, you know, those of you who have to travel for work, hopefully your work doesn't end up with mobs and legal threats and threats against your life, right? And so the Christians there in that city, you know, oh, I, didn't, I missed the most important part. So what happens is Paul, he flees for his life. He, he makes this embarrassing decision. Like in the middle of the night, he decides it's, it's best for me to just get out of here. And so he runs away basically in the middle of the night. And so the Christians there, the, the rest of the church, they're like, what was that? What just happened? This, this man came who we thought was a, an apostle, you know, a representative of, of Jesus Christ in this new movement, and all of a sudden now these crazy things are happening in our town. What just happened? And naturally, Paul's critics take full advantage of this. I mean, this is, they're just having a heyday. And so we can kind of piece together, by, based off of the way in which Paul reacts, we can kind of... Uh, see the contour of the criticisms that were, saying, that were leveled against him. Things like this guy, he, he runs away when things get hard. Paul, obviously, he doesn't believe in his own teaching, you know, otherwise he would be able to stick around. Certainly, Paul doesn't love you, because if he truly loved you, he, he would still be here, wouldn't he? Paul's just like the other charlatans, He just goes from town to town, kind of tickling people's ears, saying fanciful things, getting as much money as he can, and then going on to the next town. In fact, some scholars, um, they they analyze the things that Paul says in this passage and compare it to the story also being told in the book of Acts. And and there's some evidence that people were even charging Paul with being sexually immoral, that as he went from town to town, he was participating in ungodly things. So this is what's coming up against Paul. His, his ministry is being threatened in this moment. His character is being threatened in his moment. So how does he respond to all of this? With what kind of character does he respond to this? How would you respond to this? How would I respond to something like this? So three things. Paul begins kind of by stating the obvious there in verse 2. He says, now, don't forget, before we visited you, we had already suffered. He says, we've already been treated shamefully before we made our visit to you, so we're, we're used to this kind of thing, is kind of what he's saying. And then he says, now when we preached to you, it was in the midst of much conflict, he says. Now that, you could say, is a bit of an understatement. So I think what we can glean from this is that Paul is a kind of Christian leader who is prepared for suffering. He's prepared for suffering. He, he knows that that's what, what takes place in this kind of work. He's, he's prepared for suffering. To be a follower of Christ, that is to proclaim light in the midst of darkness, is to anticipate resistance. It's to in- accept the inevitability of resistance and suffering. It's hard to read this and not be reminded of someone else in the scriptures, right? Jesus himself was accused of many things, 
Jesus was accused of being a glutton, of being a drunkard, of being an enemy of the state, and being controlled by Satan, and, and being a lunatic. I mean, we can go on and on. His own family makes fun of him at some point, right? And this wasn't just basic name-calling. These kinds of accusations leveled against Jesus is what eventually led to his crucifixion. It was all of these kinds of false statements and accusations. And so when Paul proclaims the truth of the gospel, he experiences pushback and threats and violence. And he's entering into the way of Jesus, into the life of Jesus. Now, what Paul is not doing is he's not stating this to say that he's somehow been initiated, you know, that he's been, uh, and, and he's also not using this to like bully his people uh, into believing what he's believing. He's not trying to manipulate them like, oh, do you see what I've been through? Like, you should be on my side. Like, that's, that's not what he's doing here. It's some kind of paradox and, and mystery in the Christian faith that in places of brokenness, we find glimmers of, of beauty and this is true not just of the kind of suffering that happens due to persecution, but all sorts of suffering that we as human beings exist, uh, experience. Our suffering is, is a way for us to experience Christ in these moments, to see his healing hand at work, to see glimmers of, of heaven unfolding even in the darkest of moments. So Molly uh, just finished this book called Hope Heals, uh, by Catherine Wolfe. And you'll notice anytime I reference a book, most likely it's one that she has read or that she's given to me to read. Um, Molly is a, a ferocious reader. Um, so this comes from something that Molly shared with me. So Catherine Wolfe, this, this dear, dear woman, she suffered this awful stroke that just devastated her body. Um, her, her body is incredibly broken. She's well acquainted with, with suffering. And she writes this. And bear with me, because this is a bit of a long quote. She says, What has happened to me is extreme. However, it's not that different from what everyone deals with. She says, I am a sort of microcosm for what we all feel. I can barely walk, even with a cane. But who feels free, even if they can? My face is paralyzed. But who feels beautiful, even when they can look normal? I have no coordination in my right hand, so I can't hold things, even my child. But who feels like a competent parent, even if all of their faculties are intact? For months I could not eat, and even today I have difficulty swallowing. But who feels fully satisfied, even if they can enjoy every delectable treat that they desire? I am, all, I am tired all the time. But who always feels energized to engage fully in their life? My voice is messed up, but who feels understood, even if they can speak plainly? I have double vision, but who can see anything clearly, even if they can see normally? Do you hear the power in her words? Do you hear the strength that's in here, this, this beauty? I mean, clearly, this is someone who has suffered tremendously. But because of the light of Christ, it, he, he's redeemed her suffering. Later, she says this, I believe that pain is pain, no matter what the form, but perspective is also perspective. Ultimately, ours is a story of life overcome by hope. We are discovering joy even in the sadness and choosing contentment when it is very, very hard. For that and for countless other blessings, I'm so grateful to God. We have learned that when everything else is gone, hope remains. I feel like these are words that are like, some of the most beautiful words I've ever read outside of the scriptures. 
Because, and that's what happens when, when we expect and, and meet Jesus in the midst of our suffering. He makes himself known. We encounter the God of the universe in these moments. So Christian ministers, Christian leaders, all of us as believers ought to be prepared to suffer, but not alone, with Jesus. So secondly, what can we see here? Paul says, uh, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So many of you know that our church just uh, transferred from one diocese to another. Uh, That's not a normal thing that churches do, nor is it a fun thing to do. Um, And in that process, I had to undergo uh, certain theological examinations. Uh, So I was sort of being like remembering my ordination exams and sort of like, oh, dang it. Um, (laughs) I don't want to do this. Maybe not dang it, (laughs) but I don't want to do this again. Um, And do you know what the first question is that my grader asked me? He said, what's the gospel? Isn't that beautiful? It's a good place to start, I think. And what that tells me is that he doesn't presume that just because someone wears a collar around their neck that they know what the gospel is. I was talking to uh, a a new friend of mine in this new diocese, uh, kind of in light of uh, an upcoming visit that we're going to receive from our bishop. And uh, we're going to have confirmations that weekend. And so my friend was telling me what confirmation looks like in this diocese. And, And he said, well, just tell your people that the first question that Bishop Ken asks is going to be, what is the gospel? I'm like, oh, well, that's a lovely place to start. So those of you who are going to be confirmed, um, you know, make sure you've got that articulated pretty well. And I love that, that we're in a tradition, like many other traditions, we're not the only tradition that does this, but we are in a tradition who proclaims the gospel week after week after week. We hear it multiple times in multiple ways throughout our Sunday worship liturgy. I think we hear it most clearly in the liturgy of the table. You'll hear the gospel proclaimed to you. Most simply, the gospel is God rescues sinners. He loves sinners. God rescues sinners. Out of his infinite love, he created us in his image to experience him, to enjoy him. But we rebelled against God. We subjected ourselves to evil and to death, as we say every week. But then God sent, out of his great and abundant mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay a price that we could not, to atone for the sin that, that we had committed, to create peace with God. He sends Jesus Christ into the world for our salvation. And upon the cross is where he makes payment for sin, opening up for us the way of everlasting life, filling us with his Holy Spirit, giving us a household with other brothers and sisters to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit and to enjoy the abundant life that Christ offers to us. So you know in the movie Shrek, when, when Shrek says, I am an onion, was that an abrupt transition for some of you? Okay, I'll tone it down next time. <laughs> so in, in the movie Shrek, uh, he says that he's like an onion, remember that? You know, and, and the more that you get to know Shrek and sort of peel back the layers of, of who he is and what he cares about and stuff and, you know, other weird stuff like that. The gospel is, is sort of like that. Uh, only as you peel back the layers, and I think C.S. Lewis is the one who points this out, the, the circles don't get smaller and smaller, they actually get bigger 
in some sort of paradoxical, mysterious way. The, the more that you explore the gospel, the more powerful it becomes, the more beautiful it becomes. The more that you see how it impacts all the various broken fragments in your own life or, or how it heals your relationships or how it helps you to understand this creation more and certainly reconciles you more and more to God. It's just, you know, a child can understand the gospel, that, that God loves and rescues sinners. But as we grow older and, and as we move from this age into the next, we're going to continue to always enjoy the, the beauty and the power and the life that exists within the gospel. Paul says that you have been, that we have been, you and all of us have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. How does that sit with you, knowing that you have been approved by God? Now, let's be clear. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's not because you put on a great outfit today or whatever. <laughs> like, it, it's because you're, you're you're loved by God, and through, through Jesus and his life and his work, you now get to put on his robes of righteousness. You now get to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so when you, when you approach the throne of grace, it's not from a position of fear. It's, it's knowing that you've been died for, that blood has been shed on your behalf, and you can now approach the Father without fear, knowing that, that out of his abundant grace, he loves you. And then he entrusts you with the gospel. You yourself get to treasure that. You get to hold it. You get, you get to, like a diamond, you get to constantly spin it in your hands and, and see how the light of this world sort of refracts and creates beautiful things. And you get to explore the, the mysteries and the depths of the gospel. We, can talk, we, we do. We talk about this all the time. But this, the second thing that I think we can glean from this is that Christian leadership, Christian ministry, the Christian life is entrusted with the gospel. Thanks be to God. So where does Paul go from this? Does he, you know, as he's trying to build a bridge back with this broken community, does he, does he assert his authority? Does he say, I'm an apostle. You shouldn't have treated me that way. Or does he shame them? And he's like, you allowed this to happen. You know, you should have stuck up for me. You know, why did you let that happen? Does he brag about his own accomplishments? How does he, how does he try to make peace with them? What sort of bridge does he build? Well, in verse 7, he says, we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. He says, like a nursing mother. And I tread delicately into this, knowing that motherhood and, and the, something as intimate as nursing, this can, this can stir up complexities. This can stir up insecurities and, and hurt. Don't allow that to distract you from the beauty of what Paul is pointing at here just the, the tenderness that he has here, the gentleness that he has here. He uses the image of a mother who gives of her very self for the nourishment, for the provision, for the safety of her child. You know, we here in the American church, we, we love talking about Paul as this machismo, sort of like hyper-masculine kind of dude, right? Like, oh, that Paul, he suffered shipwrecks. That's awesome. He got bit by a snake and he lived. That's awesome. He argues doctrine with other apostles, you know? Like he writes with conviction and power and he travels the world and does these adventurous, you know, manly things. He confronted Caesar himself. Can you believe that? And yes, those are true things. He did some remarkable things. But then also in verse 8, he says, I so I'm so affectionately desirous of you. Like, it's almost embarrassing how, how gushy he is with the people. 
And at the end, he says, you're so very dear to us. That phrase, very dear, not that I, I want to criticize the translators, but I, I don't think that's a, the best translation. The, the word very dear is, is, comes from the same word agape, of, of deep, deep love. A better word would be, you are so beloved to us. You are so beloved. He's absolutely smitten with the congregation. Do you hear this? Like a new mother who, for a moment, forgets all the troubles of the surrounding world and delights in the tiny presence of this fragile little creature, right? Paul loves the congregation like that. Like a new mother who, who makes herself vulnerable to the child and offers nourishment from her own heart to the child. That's what Paul is saying that he does for the church. Christian leaders are supposed to be marked with gentleness, like this. That should always be the first step. And that doesn't mean that we don't say the truth or we don't have difficult conversations. Gentleness should always be the first step, should always be the first tone of, of Christian ministry, of, of the church. Christian leaders don't bark orders at people. They don't lead with appeals to their authority or demands to obey. They don't get defensive or angry when you ask them honest, open questions. Rather, they lead through service. They listen, they wait. And like Paul, they tell you that they love you. You should hear that often. Christian leaders are marked with gentleness. So this morning, I've been describing the characteristics of Paul as a Christian minister, as a leader, and how a Christian minister ought to be prepared to, to suffer, how they are entrusted with the gospel, and how they lead with gentleness. But this isn't just the ministry of Paul. This is the ministry of Jesus, the one who he learned all of this from. And this ought to be the ministry of us, the church, the body of Christ, the redeemed people of Christ, those who've been entrusted with the apostolic ministry of proclaiming the gospel. This should be the way of each one of us, brothers and sisters. We, in our own suffering, we ought to lift that up to Jesus. We should be prepared for it in all of its various shapes and sizes, and we should expect to meet Jesus in that. Holy Spirit, may you, may you allow us to see Jesus more clearly in the midst of our suffering. But also, we take joy because we've been entrusted with the gospel. We have the promise of abundant life with Jesus Christ. And then we ought to be gentle with one another through conflict, through difficult conversations. We ought to be gentle with one another. Even as we proclaim the truth, it ought to be with gentleness. May we pray with one another. Please, please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the example of your servant Paul who points us to you, Lord Christ, the ultimate example of the one who, who suffers from a place of love, who shows us beauty in the, even in the midst of suffering, who ministers with gentleness but proclaims the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Lord Christ, may restoration be like that. Fill us, Lord, afresh with your Holy Spirit for when, we, when we're unable to, when we make mistakes, when we hurt one another, Lord Jesus, may you help us to be more like you able to suffer with, with dignity and with an eye to you, knowing that it's even in the depths of that pain that we can encounter you. And Lord Christ, may we boldly proclaim the good news of your gospel, that, that you love sinners, that you die for sinners, Lord, that you offer yourself up for us. And Lord, may we be gentle just like you, the humble king, 
the Lord of lords, the God of gods. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen.